Titus chapter 2. I uh, came to this text and wondered uh, if I was supposed to be here as we're finishing off our study in First and Second Timothy and Titus, and I found that it was very, very rich with practical application for parenting and for marriage. And so these are some great um, applicable areas for us to think through as Christian families. You know, being challenged from this text was very helpful for me because perhaps you're like me and you think about your Christian life and what you expect of yourself. Do you ever do that? And do you ever sort of think about how you failed and wish that you lived your Christian life differently? I do. I actually think in terms of kind of two different Christian lives that are lived one that's actually lived and one that's lived out in my own mind. One is like this. I think, you know, I need to be more like Jesus and be out in the streets and be preaching the gospel, perhaps on the street corner, or maybe I need to blow Starbucks up, you know, not literally, but actually go into Starbucks and preach the gospel. Say, everybody, stop what you're doing and just listen to me for a second. I mean, I think about these things. Eternity is real, heaven's forever, hell is hot, you don't want to go there. Christ is Savior and Lord and he's coming back, you need to repent and believe. I, you know, do I need to buy a robe? Do I need to, you know, invest in some Teva sandals? I don't know. I, I just wonder sometimes, you know, are we supposed to be more like John the Baptist, like the apostles, like Jesus? Am I supposed to say things that get me put in jail, even here, our free country? That's not always so free, but, you know, what am I supposed to be like and do? Am I supposed to be like the prophets of old? What does a radical, sold-out Christian life look like? Then there's the other version of Christian living, and this is what I actually experience, and you do, I'm sure, as well. Well, I wake up, I go to work. I try to do my best to fulfill my duties in front of me. I try to stay organized. I try to stay on top of things. Um, I, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I, you know, I, I do business with integrity, I fight against, you know, my own anxieties, I fight against um, sin, perhaps you fight against anger, you fight against uh, other areas, perhaps um, you're tempted towards addictions with substance abuse to cope with life, you, you fight against those things, you repent of those things. Um, maybe you're a person who has felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to, to go knock on somebody's door, to call somebody up and meet with them for coffee and talk to them about their marriage, about their parenting, about their, their spouse and something you see, or, or you just want to hear them out. You know, I, I heard you're struggling with something. I'd love to listen. And that's something that you naturally either do or you would desire to do. You know, maybe you're just uh, working a job and you're doing your best to have a humble heart with a boss that's cranky and you live in a submissive way and, and that's the best that you can do in life and then you come home, you go to bed and you start all over again. Let me just put you at ease and say that Titus 2 describes the radical, difference-making, gospel-driven Christian life in that way. Normal, day-to-day -day living, most of which is behind shut doors in the home or in your car as you go from place to place, how you live the gospel out in those contexts and how you live the gospel out in the body of Christ in relationships with each other 
and how you live at your job with unsaved people around you or in the community is the way that God is building his church and saving people and drawing them into the kingdom. In fact, Titus 2, in essence, says, uh, believe the gospel. You know, throughout your week, think about the gospel that you're saved by grace alone. Um, Cling to the sound teaching of scripture, right? You just, by grace alone, but it's by Christ alone that I'm saved. I, I didn't save myself. I'm not earning my way to heaven. And that's making a difference in my life. It's making me reach out to my spouse to listen to her in an understanding way. It's causing me to pray with my kids a little bit or share the word of God with them a little bit. It's causing me to do a couple normal things through the Christian um, week, the week in a Christian home, and that is putting God on display. That's what Titus 2 has for us, and uh, it's very specific in terms of applications. And so I want to walk through this chapter, not all of it this morning, but take a chunk of it and get us started, because I was comforted greatly to find out that we really are living the Christian life when we just turn the heat up just a little bit more in terms of the normal everythings that we are either doing or failing at and want to do or can do a little better. That's what Titus 2 is all about. This is the early church. This is the the church that was persecuted in the book of Acts. When, When you can live the normal Christian life and you do it a little bit out loud and you put it on display and that invites persecution, that's what the Christian life looks like. And sometimes you aren't persecuted for that, and sometimes you are, but it it doesn't mean that you're trying to pick a fight. It's just you're trying to live the life of the Christian. And that's what Titus 2 is all about. In essence, look at verse 10. At the end, it says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Um, Titus, as I'm going to read in a few moments, talks about older men, older women, younger women, and young men. It talks about bond servants or people who are employed in environments. I mean, that's sort of the application, employer-employee environments, that in all of those regular, normal context, however old you are, whatever gender you are, you are to believe the gospel on a head level and it translates to a heart level and then you literally wear the gospel as like a jacket that you're adorning in front of a watching world and you do that while you interact with each other in the church and while you interact with your family at home and how you interact with your boss or your your job that's what puts God on display that's how God is building his church. Remember, we've been doing a series on First and Second Timothy and Titus, and we're saying, we're reflecting the promise of Christ where Christ said, I will build my church. But guess what? He asks us to participate in the building project and gives us the blueprint for how he's going to do it. And we've talked about everything from sound doctrine to corporate worship, how men and women are participants in corporate worship through praying and through teaching ministries. We've talked about spiritual leadership. We've talked about elders and deacons and deaconesses. We've talked about um, the word of God and how it's our power tool that we use in however we participate in the body of Christ, that it's inspired, it's living, it's from God. God breathed it out by the Holy Spirit. And so preaching is, is a key hallmark part of church ministry and life and edification and growing. And now Titus chapter 2 brings us 
to really your ministry with the word of God and what that looks like in body life and not only at church. I just want to emphasize this. Most of the ministry of the word of God that you participate in will happen in your homes or will happen as you grow older, as you disciple people in terms, younger people, in terms of how they live their Christian life in the home. That's what we're talking about this morning. So I want to begin um, by reading, let me just read through verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Let's start at verse 1. Again, we're talking about categories that Paul is very clearly demarcating. One, older men, and we're talking about Older women, then younger women, and then young men. And then we're later on next week, we'll talk about bond servants or the employer-employee relationship in the workforce. But these are the categories on display. Verse 1 is an older man who is Paul. Paul who uses this word about himself in Philemon verse 9. He says, I'm aged or I'm older. He's an older man who's discipling Titus, who's a younger man and a church planner on the island of Crete. Okay, so you have older and younger dynamic here in verses 1 and 2. It begins by saying, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Um, the context here, as you'll remember, just to get a running start, Titus 1 is where the church is warned about false teachers. Titus is left on the island of Crete, picking up where Paul left off as a church planner, church leader, and one of his chief things is to deal with people, men and perhaps women in the church who are leading the church astray. You remember that the poets called basically the culture on Crete um, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So this was sort of the rabble-rousers of the culture, people who didn't care, and that was seeping into the church. And you had false teachers, verse 11 of chapter 1, who had to be silenced, who were upsetting whole families. And so by contrast, Titus, this young man of God, was to stand up in a culture that wasn't believing in Christ and were there to be silenced, he, by contrast, is to speak. Look at that in verse 1. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. I love this word teach here because instead of it being formal teaching, like we've talked about, this is just talking about speaking. And I want to just kind of try to get into your hearts a little bit with this because for all of you, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or old, you are to be speaking scripture into people's lives. And specifically in this way, it says, with what accords with sound doctrine. You know what that means? 
That means we're not all called to teach the intricacies of the gospel. I mean, men and women, there are many of you who are gifted teachers, and you need to teach in formal settings, in public settings, and I understand that. But we're all, as believers, called to learn the gospel well enough so that we can speak the application of the gospel into particular people's lives. You are supposed to meet with people and talk about their marriage, how they're raising their children, how their job is going, how their day-to-day walk with Christ is going, how they're treating their teenager, how you're treating your young kid, how you're interacting with your husband or your wife. That is a gospel-driven conversation. And it's saying in accords with sound doctrine. So you have to know sound doctrine or you have to know healthy truth. That's what that word means. You have to know the healthy teaching of the gospel and it's, got, it's breeding health in your life so that you can converse about it with people. You can talk about your Christian life, your strengths, your weaknesses, where you've done things right and where you have royally screwed up or blown it and you've learned from those mistakes and you're saying, don't do what I did. That's gospel living. That's the Christian life. So particular um, people are, are identified here in the body of Christ, sort of all-encompassing. Verse 2, the first category is older men. This is living the gospel out in your church and with your family, verses 1 through 8. And verses 1 and 2 is talking about older men. Now, again, for Paul to distinguish between men and women and for us to apply that in the 21st century is almost dangerous now. We have a culture that is more and more trying to become more unisex. It's trying to obfuscate the, or blur the lines between masculinity and femininity. But Paul makes no bones about, look, we're talking about older men here, and we're going to talk about older women and younger men and younger women. There's no blurring of the lines in terms of masculinity and femininity in terms of the Bible. This culture of androgyny is kind of uh, held accountable with Scripture. And so he begins with the older men. Older man meaning, you know, someone who's perhaps in their 60s. They're sort of beyond childbearing. I mean, or <laughs> they're beyond the age of where you would have children um, in the home. And this is Zacharias' age. Uh, Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist, said, you know, I'm aged. You know, how can I have a child now when he was confronted by the angel? And so he knew that he was old. And I believe that we need to dignify the aged in our church and see that, look, if you're older, you shouldn't be put out to pasture. I mean, one of the great things about Anchorage Grace Church is we have the garden variety of ages in our church. It's a massive blessing to have people who are well-worn in the faith, people who've been through life experiences where you can share that wisdom with younger people. Now, what Paul is doing here in verse 2 is he's identifying the older men and he's saying, Get your heart right in the gospel so that you can be useful in the ministry. And Paul is modeling this. He's giving instruction to Titus and he's calling the rest of the older men to do in like kind. He's saying, be, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. In essence, what Paul is saying, if I can be a little bit crass here, um, he's saying, look, as older men, don't become dirty old men. Don't become people who are 
um, focusing on the world, feeding on the world because you have extra time on your hands. Instead, learn from the lessons in life and learn truth and become serious about people and their eternal destinies and invest in them. Older men become sobered by the people that you've seen in this life throw their lives away. I mean, old age is not guaranteed to any of us. The longer that we're here, the more we see people who it seems like they got ripped off and they died early. So to be older is a privilege. And older men who have been older in their Christian life, who have matured through their age, they understand the sobriety about how life is short and how it's an incredible privilege to get to the end of it and be able to invest in other people. Dignified, it means you're worthy of respect. Self-controlled, it means you're a person who is spiritually minded, uh, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. You see that? That reflects Paul's sort of trivium of, of excellence, faith, hope, and love. It's the idea that you, you love people in your older age. You're not bitter about people. You love people. You, as Ecclesiastes says, remember the creator in the days of your youth. It's the idea that you as an older person look back at your childhood days or your teenager years or your young 20s years and you remember who you were and who you weren't at that point. You don't forget what it, what it means to be a little bit carefree and careless and even reckless. You're not bitter at young people for them not being as mature as you are in your station of life. I mean, there are temptations in old age where you can become bitter, you can become resentful. You can say, look, I wish I would have done this or I wish I would have become the president of the United States and I did not. You know, there, there can be these temptations to look back at what you didn't turn out to be or what happened to you circumstantially where you can become hardened in your heart and bitter. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Soften up, don't harden up. Become loving. Become a person who's trusting in the sovereignty of God by faith. I mean, as you get older, your bones and body hurt more. Perhaps your eyesight begins to fail. Your hearing begins to drop off. And, you know, these things are depicted in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 through metaphors. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 1, the evil days come and the years draw near and you'll say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. That's that last phrase is a metaphor of, of losing eyesight. It's where things are dimming. You don't hear as well. You don't see as well. You're, you're bent over more through age. And the answer is to remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, your faith that you once had needs to mature and grow even as your, your body weakens. Is that your goal as a young person? I, I want to grow old well. I want to be able to cope with the trials and difficulties of life. I remember my father, he um, had some of his vision impaired, um, you know, just through aging and through, you know, some, um, some effects, you know, in his own body that were limiting some vision. And he had to deal with that spiritually. He had to humble himself and trust God through that. 
And instead of becoming bitter, he became better, as the cliche goes. He's trusting the Lord, and that's the kind of aged man that can invest in people as they get older. Well, let's go to the older women now, verse 3. And I'm going to sort of be on um, the topic of women, older and younger, for the end of this message, and then we'll pick on the men next week. So just, uh, you know, hold the tomatoes as we move forward. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Reverent behavior, this is like being a woman who's like the priestess Anna who was in the temple. You remember her, how she prayed night and day, fasted, trusting that the Messiah would come and the Lord by the Holy Spirit, according to Luke chapter 2, granted this godly woman of the age of 84, this widow who was trusting the Lord and was able to see the Messiah as she was brought in the arms of Mary and Joseph to be dedicated to the temple. What a privilege that was for her. You remember Sarah who was remained attractive even into her 80s because of her godliness and because of her heart trusting the Lord. Well, a godly woman is to be reverent, is to be having an inward and outward behavior that is loving the Lord, not slanderers. The word slanderers there is the word diabolos. We've talked about that word. You don't want to be like the devil. You don't want to be someone who's going around and accusing people of things. Now, let me ask this question as we've gone into specifics with gender temptations. Are all the temptations common to man? Yes, the Bible says that all temptations um, are the garden variety that we experience at different levels in our lifetime, and the Lord helps us with each one. However, Paul is getting very specific here, and I think helpfully so, to say that there are some temptations that are particularly tough in stations of life and in terms of your gender. And one of them here is the idea of slandering. You don't, women, you don't want to be with, you know, gossiping and, and sort of what the Bible says, a busybody, 1 Timothy 5. You don't want to be going from house to house and slandering people. Now, we all can fall prey to gossip, but in particular, women here are targeted not to do this, to say, listen, you know, the gospel has influenced me, and I'm not going to talk about that person to somebody else. Now, let me just say this again. Um, what's more radical, street preaching or withholding gossip? They both take the extreme reliance and dependence on the Holy Spirit to do either one. And for some people, it's easier to go out in public and preach than to not gossip. So this is radical Christianity on display, not to be a slanderer or slave so much wine. You know what we're talking about here? Addictions. And, you know, whether it's public accountability, not to gossip, or private accountability where you're going behind closed doors in your room, nobody's seeing you, and maybe you're drinking too much, drinking too much alcohol, Maybe you're watching something you shouldn't watch to take your mind off your problems. Maybe you're taking prescription drugs and, and to excess in a way that's not healthy or helpful to numb your senses to the reality of what the Lord has you bear at this time. And that's sin. That's what you have to put off. Now, if you're willing to trust the gospel 
and trust Christ for comfort and for care and to restrain your tongue and to make you reverent, then you are to do this. Look at this. They are to, verse 3, teach what is good. You're called to teach. This word here, teach, is not talking about formal teaching. This is talking about the ministry that you older women are all supposed to have, whether you have the gift of teaching or not. This is talking about conversing with people. You're all called to converse with each other. Have you ever been in a conversation where you sit down with a woman and you're a woman and you're sitting there and, and that woman says something to you that changes your day, changes your week, and becomes a principle embedded in your heart that you remember for the rest of your life? You ever had that happen? Many of you ever, have, ever had that happen with a discipleship encounter where you're talking and somebody says something or answers a question that you have about life, about how you deal with your child, your teenager, your spouse, your boss, your relationships? You ever had somebody say, what about this? Have you ever, ever, you ever considered this? And suddenly the lights turn on and you're like, wow, that's powerful ministry. That is word ministry that will change your life. And any of you who think that you do not have a ministry, I want to just correct that and say you do have a ministry. You are, in fact, supposed to be God's intervening means of grace into somebody's life. What does that look like? Well, this is older women talking to younger women. Look at verse 4. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Stop there. Older women... The Bible says, Paul says, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible to say that you are the number one agent of grace to help marriage, to help marriages, to help parenting. That's what the scripture is targeting here. Now there's preaching, there's, you know, older men to younger men, discipleship. But what I'm saying is, is that there are some temptations that women have in their hearts where they lock up and you don't want to love your husband anymore. And you might say, well, you know, I, I, I don't love that stinky guy, but I do love my kids. I mean, you're, you're going to say I'm not loving my kids, are you? But listen, there are temptations to not love your spouse and there are temptations even to show favoritism in the home and not love kids in the way that they need to be loved. There are there are temptations to bitterness that you can have as a mom where, where you think you got ripped off because your child isn't turning out the way you want that child to turn out or that child is tempting you in ways that you, you hate yourself, you hate the way that you're tempted and you hate what parenting does to your own heart and your own conscience. There are things that go on in a woman's heart that strike deeply to the core of their being where they can be parenting superficially but withholding the love that really needs to be there through true gospel parenting. And what's the corrective? It's, it's the older woman who's done it right or who's completely blown it and not done it right who pursues the younger woman who's in her 20s or 30s. She's a, you know, a new mom. I mean, you really don't, know who your spouse is until you're married. I've heard this, until you're married for about 15 or, you know, 16 years. And, you know, that's borne out to be true in my life. I know my wife more and more the longer I've been married with her, and she knows me more and more, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we learn more through that. But what I'm saying is, is that a woman, a godly woman who's been there, done that, 
where it's either turned out to be a disaster in her life or it has turned out to be wonderful, that woman is the key to intervene and to enter into that younger woman's life on a bonding level where your souls and your hearts can knit together in love and you can minister to that younger woman in a way that no one else can. It's not my job, even as a pastor, to bond with younger women in our church. It's not. It's not the older men in the church. It's not your responsibility as some sort of mentor, as some sort of life coach or whatever, to bond on those levels of intimacy. But guess what? Older women, it's appropriate, it's necessary, it's powerful. You've got to teach or train the younger women to become husband lovers. That's what it literally means, or children lovers. You know what that spoke to me regarding it? It sort of spoke to me in two ways. Number one, probably for most of us, we need to learn or to be trained in loving our spouses more. And we're not talking about just formal training. I mean, marriages and personalities are two all over the place. Children are two all over the place in terms of personalities and scenarios. There are special needs children. There are very smart children. There are different children. I mean, I've got six different animals that live in my home. And, and, and my wife has benefited greatly from women who speak their own anecdotes, their own experiences, their own version of highs and lows in ministry where they talk together and they figure something out that's unique to that household. You see what I mean? That's the unique, intimate, gospel, living, body life dynamic that reflects the glory of God in the church and benefits the home. That's what should be going on all the time. Loving husbands, you know, if, if you as an older woman have the privilege to speak into a marriage and sow seeds that will keep that marriage strong through the toughest times in life, do you realize how important that is? Do you realize how powerful that is? It's a total privilege to do that work there's there's marriages that fall apart all the time there's abuse in the home there's abuse of kids and it's the older godly woman that's called upon to intervene i'm not saying you know pastors can't speak in those situations sunday school teachers or there couldn't be a situation where someone is spiritually more mature and reaching someone who's chronologically older i mean i'm not trying to overcast this thing but i'm just saying you have a ministry and hopefully the Lord prompts your heart to make the phone call, to set up time with coffee, to sit down and have these conversations. It's very important. Let's look further in the text. They're not only talking about husbands and children, but they, the older women also speak into the lives of the woman's heart to be self-controlled, pure, Working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. These are some couplets here in terms of Paul's phrasing. The first couplet is self-controlled and pure. Paul's talking about personal purity. I think a lot of times the, the target is on the man in terms of his personal purity in his life. But here, the Bible is speaking directly into the heart and soul of the women. Women, you are to be guarded and protected in your own personal purity and morality and older women are the ones who are to instruct the younger women to be this way oftentimes and we're talking about being a worker at home oftentimes 
um, women who are finding their identity outside of the home on the job, and we're going to talk about it. It's fine to work, you know, a, a job um, as long as your heart priorities in the home. But on the job, you can bond with people of the opposite sex, opposite gender, in an inappropriate way where that person begins to listen to you, care for you, ask you questions, and open you up, where suddenly immorality is taking place in the heart and in deeds, in actions. And so older women are ones that can show up Look into the situation and say, eh, you know, we might need to mid-course correct that relationship. That's what's being talked about here. This is gospel life. This is application of the gospel. For the sake of Christ, it might be good for you to correct that situation. It's training, self-control, and purity. All right, working at home. What are we talking about here this is an important phrase, and I know that this is a, you know, a controversial phrase in terms of how it's applied. Um, it, it primarily is, is very easy to just teach this and understand it, and it's simply this. As a mom, your priority, your number one priority is the nurturing and honoring, honoring of your husband and the nurturing of your children. That's what this is talking about. Talking about being busy at home. It means that your primary identity is your children, is your husband, is your household. It's that food, clothing, and shelter we're taken care of. Now, is that, does that mean the husband just gets to ignore the home? No. As a matter of fact, the qualification of the, to be an elder or a spiritual leader in a church is to be able to take care of your own family, your own household. So it's a shared responsibility, but... A, a part of, a large part of the mommy's heart is to take care of her kids. Now, again, there's a garden variety of scenarios where women may have to work also outside the home. The Bible's not addressing this. In fact, the Proverbs 31 woman is a person who negotiates buying a field, selling a field, um, you know, having a, a side job um, with merchandise and, and doing all these things, but also her priority and her primary responsibility is waking up early, making sure the kids are fed, making sure the needs are met, staying up late, making sure needs are met. And the household is her heart and is her primary affection. There's nothing wrong with being gifted. There's everything right about being gifted in ways where you can earn money, where you can um, use your giftedness, where you can um, you know, explore the great ways that God can use you in different stations of life. But... Your primary responsibility when you have children in the home is that they are nurtured and cared for physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And that's what God's word says. And this flies in the face of our culture. Um, our culture kind of turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to this and sort of puts kids on their own, sadly. And instead, we have to fight against those temptations of selfishness and invest in our children's lives okay let's move on to uh one that's less controversial let's see here uh kind and submissive to their own husbands i'm just kidding this is very controversial um yeah um submission it's a word hupotasso it's uh it's actually a middle passive use and it's talking about voluntary submission from the heart that's what it's talking about it's not forced submission from a husband who might be abusive. Um, it's not 
legalistic submission where you say, oh, I'm going to submit to that creep. Put myself under him. It's not saying that um, as a wife or um, a female that you are intellectually, emotionally inferior to a husband. That's not what it's talking about. In fact, uh, there are several places in Scripture. Galatians 3.28, it talks about how male and female are co-equal heirs in Christ. We're made equally in the image of God. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about the Godhead and how Christ was and is subordinate to the Father. But we know that Jesus is equally God in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what are we talking about here? What does it mean to submit, to literally rank yourself under your husband? What does that mean? Well, in an unbelieving home, 1 Peter 3, it talks about even wives who are believers doing that to reach them for Christ. But I want to turn your attention over to Ephesians 5 and just show you how this works out because I think that this is the most explicit explanation of submission. Ephesians 5.21 is talking about everybody submitting. There is a general submission that is to happen within the church at large. This is all of us with all of each other. It says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what is the driving motivation for submitting to each other in, in the church? When you see somebody and you, you, know, you like them or you don't like them or you have some issue with them or you don't have, you know, and you kind of look at them and you focus your mind to say, you know what? I am going to put myself spiritually under that person and care for that person, whether I like them or not. I'm submitting. I'm esteeming them higher than myself. What, what compels your heart to do that? Look at verse 21. Out of reverence for Christ. The reason we submit or humble ourselves to anybody is because of Jesus, because we fear him. When you think vertically first and say, Lord, I know what kind of sin-sick, shriveled-up soul I really am. I, I know my own sin. I know my own wickedness. I know my own heart. And so I'm not going to judge that person. I'm going to lift that person up. That is mutual submission. That principle carries right into the home. And if you'll see this in verse 22, wives, hupatasso, it's the same word, submit, bring yourself under your own husbands. Look at this at the end. As to the Lord. The idea is that it's a spiritual, voluntary submission where you first start with Christ and you say, Lord, I love you. You've designed marriage to work in this way. You've designed it. It's countercultural. You know, the whole feminism movement has been one that, you know, it, it clouds the judgment, I think, in womanhood where there's a worldly womanhood that says, I need to, you know, have my own rights, my own freedoms, and I need to be delivered from the tyranny of subordination. But really for the household to, to be healthy and to magnify Christ and to image Christ and the church, Christ is the head and the church is the body of Christ, to do that is to say, I'm going to voluntarily trusting the Lord come underneath the leadership of my husband. And if you look here, there's an organic dimension here. This is not, this is not slavery. This is not a child even obeying the parents type model. This is living, organic husband and wife. Look at this. Wives submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his, and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. This is, this is organic, living, dynamic relationship submission. Um, a wife is, is, is reflected as the body of Christ to the head, it's, uh, uh, who is Christ. It's the idea that you're, you're a living, organic relationship where you talk through and think through life together. And it says in verse 31 that you are to leave and cleave when you become married. Eve said, or Adam said of Eve, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He knew that Eve was going to become a living part of his life and his heart. So as husbands self-sacrificially love and lead and shepherd their wives, wives become the chief influence and best friend to the husband. This is a best friendship relationship. And I heard it said very wisely from one pastor. Um, it was a profound sermon I heard one time. He said this. He said, the number one influence in your life growing up typically is your mom and dad. No matter what other friends you have. And he said, even, you know, in countries uh, other than America, they get that more than we do because, you know, families live together and cohabitate together and sort of commune together. And the influence of parents on children is radically strong. And it is. But when you become married, you're hitting the reset button because you're leaving and cleaving out from under your parents and your new number one life-shaping significant relationship is your spouse. You're connected in love and in friendship and you're influencing each other dynamically. Understanding submission in that context kind of changes everything. Because there's a living conversation and dialogue between two people where you are shaping each other in terms of your values, in terms of what you love, in terms of what you enjoy, in terms of what you do. And so when decisions are made, yes, the husband bears a responsibility in those decisions. And there are ultimate decisions where the wife has to say, you know, I have to let go and just trust my husband and his judgment and what he's going to say. But it's all part of a living dynamic of husband and wife. I know that, for instance, um, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, somebody gave um, one of my kids uh, a gift card to Old Navy. And my wife was, you know, cruising out to Old Navy with, uh, with a bunch of the kids. And I thought, they're not going to just come back with the gift card worth of goods. They're going to come back with other things. And, and I didn't tell my wife, you know, now don't buy more stuff. I just said to myself, well, you know, it's going to happen. And, and that's why places like Old Navy create gift cards. So you get in there and you start buying stuff. And you go, oh yeah, I want this. So each kid came back with something. And, and I didn't plan that. I didn't dictate over that. I didn't lead in a, you know, a slave driving way. I just accept that. But I bear responsibility for what happened as the head, you know, and, and that's part of the fun of headship and submission and a living relationship together. So much more to be said, but you know, we all need each other. The world views marriage in such a cavalier way that, you know, to, to think it through biblically can seem so countercultural, but it is God's design and means for health in homes. And the older and the, the older men and older women are to shepherd the younger men and younger women in this pursuit. 
there was a art columnist who sort of made fun of his own um, tragic um, divorces. He had a lot of ill-fated marriages and divorces. His name is Lewis Grizzard, a columnist from the Atlanta newspaper. And eventually he said this. He said he was going to give up on marriage altogether, uh, that there wouldn't be another Mrs. Grizzard. And quote, he said, I'm just going to have to find a woman who hates me and buy her a house. <laughs> and, you know, it's sad. It's funny, but it's sad. But that's how our culture thinks about marriage nowadays. And it's, there are biblical reasons why people get divorced. Um, there are things that happen. There are reasons to separate at times for um, the sake of safety. And I understand all those um, intricate, you know, things that happen. However, older women, I just want to challenge you. Be God's instrument and tool to help people. Not just the hurting marriage that you think might be failing. Invest early in marriages and pursue people. Talk to these women. Help them along the way. And be God's instrument, God's redeeming instrument of grace to help these younger women. Next week, we'll talk about men. We'll talk about um, older men and younger men in the home. But I want to point out verse 5. Look at this. It says, submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. You know, when, when the gospel is clearly understood and lived out in normal Christian life, when there's any hint of health in the home, when there's any hint of health in parenting and obedience, and it takes a lot of hard work, guess what? God is glorified and his, his word is vindicated. When marriages are breaking apart and nobody's trying to help out in the body of Christ and people are just left on their own, guess what? God's word is literally blasphemed. It's the idea that the gospel doesn't work. It's all just a charade. It's all just a show. It doesn't work. What Paul's saying to Titus here is it does work. And I'll end with um, this reference from 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Guess what this means? This means if you have godly conduct, if you're living out the gospel, as older men, older women, younger women, younger men, if you're living it out, guess what happens? People who were literally rebelling against Christ, angrily speaking against you as a Christian, on the day of visitation when Jesus returns, they're saved because your life made a difference in theirs and they got saved. Do you want people to get saved? Let's just live the normal Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word and just beginning to open up Titus chapter 2 and all that's there. Lord, there's much there to be applied and thought through, and I pray that you would make it a reality in our hearts. And for those who are hurting in marriage or family or parenting, I pray that we would reach out to each other in love with the, the power tools um, of the gospel to help people in their hurts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a couple uh, questions.